Hi, and welcome to the Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions, and I'll be hosting the show today. Carol is having a little time off, but in the meantime, we have a wonderful guest with us today, Stephen D. Katz. He's an award-winning writer, producer, and director. His work has appeared on Saturday Night Live and in many cable and theatrically released films, such as Clear and Present Danger, for which he completed the first full digital revisualization of a motion picture. He's taught workshops at venues including the American Film Institute, Sundance Film Festival, and Parsons School of Design. So, Stephen, let's just jump right in. There's a lot of great information that you have to share today. Tell us how modern visual filmmaking has changed from the time of the golden age of Hollywood. And, by the way, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, very much looking forward to it. And, um, well, you asked the question how... Sorry about that. Uh, I have to apologize. I have to apologize. Um, that is our and for some reason, okay. it did not start up right away. <laughs> well, I didn't know we'd be doing a musical, but I'm happy to participate. And uh, so, uh, right. actually, I'm a musician. I play guitar. I could have joined in, but I don't have my guitar handy right now. Uh, but you asked me the question of how is um, how have things changed since uh, well, in, in, in during the history of filmmaking. You know, we started in the early part of the century, uh, the 19, early 1900s, and, and within the first 20 years, by 1920, I would say 80% of the rules of filmmaking, what we call Hollywood decoupage, which really means editing. How do you take these various shots and put them together and do a sequence that looks like a new reality? And um, that's been, that started uh, in the early part of the century, and by 1920, it was kind of worked out, silent error. And we move into the golden age uh, of Hollywood where it gets refined, and, and now we have to also deal with how do you record actors and dialogue and how do you present that. It's, it's, it's a, a different challenge for filmmakers. And, um, and now we have today, and uh, so things have changed. Um, and, and really, I would say it changes for three major reasons, uh, at least historically for us, is the technology changes. There are stylistic changes, and the artists interact with these things. In fact, the artists interact with the technology, and that produces stylistic changes. So uh, we were talking a little bit early before the show started about iPhones, and you know, there's a perfect example of a, of a device that has completely sort of upended the way that we think of media, how we consume it, and how we make it. The notion that it's all you know, in one device that happens to also be a phone is absolutely remarkable. It's really a computer. I mean, I think that's the right way to think of it that has a camera attached. So uh, what has changed is that it's much, much easier to go out and shoot something today, and that has produced a, a lot of opportunity and a lot of bad video. So uh, when you look at a motion picture, uh, and we see whether it's Casablanca or it's Godzilla that came out this week, it really doesn't matter. Uh, the ways in which we shoot this are all aimed at trying to create a reality so that you're sitting in the audience you're an audience, and you're sitting in the theater, and you're watching these shows you're enjoying, and you're not really supposed to be aware of the technique. And it's not like uh, where a book, you can sort of hold it away from you and not really try to pay attention to what the sentence means, but see how the things fit together. You don't even get to see that in a motion picture. You just get to see this what is essentially invented reality. 
So uh, to do that, it really is very painstaking, takes a lot of time. And uh, that's, that's one thing that with, when, you, when you're using an iPhone or other technologies today that are very easy to capture material, um, it, it seems like it should be just as easy to fit all this stuff together, but it's not. It requires a great deal of planning. And uh, it's, it's a false reality. And, and as, uh, that's really the goal of my book is to teach you how to be able to do this um, yourself as a director, production designer, and so on. So anyway, again, technology uh, advances. We had TV, for example, and TV produced a stylistic change in, in, um, in the way we looked at things because suddenly the close-up was, the, was being used met much, much, much more than in the golden age. In the golden age, we thought it was a the- theatrical experience. By the time we get to TV in the early 50s and 60s, it's a little box, and it didn't even get it. You know, now we have much bigger L- LCD panels and LED panels, and, you know, I have a 70-inch uh, a TV downstairs, and other people have much less. Well, back when I was a kid, <laughs> like a 24-inch uh, screen was big. So uh, you were sitting that in the living room. So that meant that uh, for most uh, shows, uh, we moved in a direction of many, many, many more close-ups. Uh, they're actually easier to cut as well, so it was almost a time and, and money-saving um, uh, reason for doing that. But uh, And then artists who worked in TV for many years, when they moved over to motion pictures, they realized you didn't lens things, you didn't use the same uh, lenses as you did uh, if you're doing a feature. So feature and TV sort of went in uh, a fork in the road, uh, although there were so many TV-trained uh, directors that it started to change the movies, and you saw many more close-ups. And, and critics and others you know, commented about it through the 80s and the, into the 90s. Um, and then there are stylistic changes that are independent, really, of technology. For example, uh, the French New Wave and then the indie productions of the 70s and 80s. Those were driven not quite by technology, but in the case of uh, the French New Wave, it was almost a political revolt, uh, uh, start beginning in France and a little bit leftist in leaning, and uh, that's uh, what really became uh, one of the drivers of, te- of, of technique. And that was the first time we saw handheld cameras and much more realistic dialogue and a, a different approach. And then in the 70s and 80s, in a sense, almost being propelled forward from the new, new age, not so much in terms of style, but in terms of the fact that uh, the door was opening for younger filmmakers. Um, and so throughout the indie production of 70s, 80s, uh, those earliest filmmakers trying to get started without working through the Hollywood system didn't have a lot of money and budget, so they had to find new ways to do things. So that did produce, yeah. again, more handheld filmmaking. So anyway, those, those are some of the techno- technological and um, human uh, changes that have brought us to where we are today. Right, quite a few changes, in fact. And, you know, earlier you were yeah. mentioning the iPhone and so forth. And, you know, they've, they've made high-end-looking productions possible for micro-budget filmmakers. Oh, yeah. And having, yeah, having the gear is fine, but what do these new filmmakers need to know about using it? And why? Well, um, uh, well uh, I think, first of all, that uh, the new filmmakers are uh, better trained today. If they didn't go to film school, uh, you still have YouTube. And there's a lot of information out there that's pretty easy to get your hands on, stuff that did, certainly didn't exist when I was coming up as a I was a kid filmmaker, and I went through the 
process of, of, of teaching myself, but there was like no material. It was from frankly really one or two books. But anyway, so um, I would say that uh, today the younger filmmakers are very enthusiastic to get out there and get anything on film. And But if they're doing fictive work, and this is a little bit different than if you're doing a documentary, you're doing a documentary, well, you really don't have to know that much uh, except uh, having high journalistic standards and, and uh, knowing how to find a story. You're just sort of kind of not wanting to get involved and interfere with the source of the material. So that's, that's documentary filmmaking, and that's, man, is it a great re- – it's a renaissance for them nowadays because of the new gear. But if you're doing fictive work and you're trying to tell a story uh, which uh, requires a you know, made-up reality, then, again, a, a great deal of planning is required because just because it looks simple when we see it on the screen like two people are talking, it took hours to shoot. If it takes place in three minutes, it may, may have taken an hour to rehearse it, to stage the actors, to get the camera in position, to light all those things um, uh, are things you have to learn. You don't, you know, they don't, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you have to learn both the stylistic conventions and then how to actually get them done in a day <laughs> and on a budget because that's not always automatic. You have to make stylistic choices based on your budget. Right. And these are some of the things you talk about in your brilliant book, Shot by Shot. So tell us, what do students and professionals really get from your book? Well, it's, it's uh, really built into, into three parts, um, although I suppose the most active are, the two, are two. One is teaching you film language. And I base that around actors uh, and human beings and dialogue sequences because everything else is either a close-up of a thing uh, which stands alone, and is and uh, and then you have a uh, you have landscape photography, which is like lo- lo- a location shot, an establishing shot. But everything else, primarily, um, and, and I, I, I'm leaving out action. I don't really teach action per se in the book, although you could you would certainly get a great deal of grounding in what you would need to understand that. But it's primarily dialogue sequences, which have to be interesting and have to be compelling, and you have to find the emotion in the scene. So anyway, the book does this uh, first by uh, discussing, uh, really going through all the possibilities, hundreds of possibilities of how you can do a scene. And I group them per page, so there's four or five shots, and you understand uh, different ways of uh, doing the same idea. So I say, okay, here's what's happening in the scene. Here's one way of doing it. Here's another. So it's very comparative. So now you have this language. You now understand, okay, this is – the things I watch, I'm now beginning to understand how they go together like sentences. Um, and then I uh, teach and, uh, in the, what's called visualization, which is how you plan for these sequences. Because once they're in your head, uh, it's a little bit different than typing out a story because you don't really need anything but a word processor. If you're trying to do the same thing, do a, a scene and it's not in language or not uh, a prose, then it's going to be done in, through imagery. And not everybody draws, and uh, and also to produce those images is a lot harder than it is to pr- type something into a text. So in the early part of the book, I talk about the process of getting something that's in your head into a form that can be presented to the to your creative team or even just yourself. And that's that's and that's storyboarding. Although there's many other mm-hmm. related techniques, it doesn't just have to be storyboarding. You can do the same thing by just taking pictures of your friends. Sometimes. As I did in my early days in commercial production, 
back when it was uh, three-quarter U-Matic, was the technology for video, and that was the first really inexpensive tool of its kind for professionals. So I would often go out and, and pre-shoot my own commercials that I would have to shoot a week later, and I would just get anybody who was handy, would be whether it was my wife or a friend or uh, the production team would get some PAs together, and we'd sort of rough out what it is we'd be doing, and then we cut that together, and then we would have a – and we might combine it with storyboards. So that would – be uh, certainly the first part of what the book does. So I teach the style of things you need to understand, the, the language of film, uh, through comparative uh, pages of uh, grouped shots, which are like editing. And then um, once you understand, well, how do I do that? Well, then you go back and you have to visualize it, and you sort of understand you're reading your script or you have a script, you uh, see images in your head. How do you get that across to the director of photography, your cinematographer, or your other people, even the actors. So uh, that's where uh, these pre-visualization pre tools come in, and, and there you learn how to plan. So those are the two major parts of the book and, and the methodology I use to teach. Right, yes. So, yes, I was going to talk with you about your teaching method that you use in your book, but that pretty much covers it right there. How do new filmmakers break into films? Well, uh, today it really, it, again, it's changed enormously in the last 10 or 12 years. It used to be the screenplay was, the, your, was your calling card. And uh, there are a lot of screenwriters out there, uh, and it's not a movie. It's a blueprint. So what has happened is uh, there's a new generation, the millennials and, and uh, online, and they're going to YouTube and Vimeo, and they're creating things. They've got these tools now. They can actually go out and make two or three or four or five-minute shorts. So, yeah, the, the quick answer is, you know, how do you get in today? Well, writing a screenplay is, if you want to be a writer, you have to have a screenplay. If you want to be a director, uh, well, you've got to show people what you can do. So it, it, you make a short subject. Or in the case of the, even Mumblecore, which is uh, sort of a – a looser uh, uh, approach to filmmaking, um, hyper-realistic. And those things are shot super simply. Uh, and sometimes that's enough if your dialogue is really good. But if you're trying to show you're going to be a, you're a director and you want, you're going to look for a job getting work in episodic television or motion pictures, you have to have something that's sort of up to that standard. And that was almost impossible mm -hmm. to do until 15 years ago. <laughs> I... When I was a kid, I'll give you, you know, what was the process? The first thing I got on air was uh, for Saturday Night Live, and um, it was a, became a quite well-known short. Uh, well, it took me months to shoot, and if I went out and had, I had a, it was shot in 16 millimeter um, on the Claire ACL, and uh, the film, every time I went, sh went to shoot, I had to buy the film, which was uh, expensive. I had to have the film processed. But when I had the film processed, I only got negative. Then I had an answer print made. Then I had to have an audio track made from that, which was called Full Coat. Um, every one of these steps cost hundreds of dollars. And if you were yeah. shooting, you know, hours of film, anyway, it all adds up. Today, it's, they're, they're, those costs are almost non-existent because you already own your phone. You needed a phone. Well, guess what? It's also your uh, motion picture camera. And uh, if you want to edit, there's even apps you can do on your phone, but you probably have a a uh, uh, computer, and uh, even on a laptop, you can get editing programs. You can get programs for compositing, like After Effects that do visual effects. 
you have Photoshop and other things to create materials and titles and things that you then put into motion in After Effects, which then go into your editing program, which could be any number of them, Premiere Pro or Avid or a Final Cut, whatever it happens to be, and then you assemble it. But the, and, you know, some of the softwares, it might be a couple, a few hundred bucks here and there, um, but under $1,000. And yes, that's yes. your cost for shooting, apart from buying everybody pizza on set. So uh, it's <laughs> right. a very, very, very different. Well, that's actually those. Some of those things are more expensive than than the software required to make them. You can get it actually a very respectable um, uh, audio mixing program and recording program for free. There's several of them mm-hmm. out there that are yeah. uh, the, uh, that are absolutely cost nothing, and there's and they're serious programs. You can do 20 fa- 24 track and recording and, and more. And so anyway, uh, uh, it's it's uh, if you're going to break in, you have to make something that people can see, and then you can put it up on YouTube if you uh, and and hope you get followers. Now, an interesting thing that's happened is how uh, the studios and other media buyers, people looking for new talent and new material, uh, they actually are almost less interested in the material themselves and evaluating it. Uh, That never goes away, but uh, instead, they're now just looked at the numbers of how successful you were on YouTube. So that becomes more important. It's a popularity contest more than it's a uh, proving that your Mm, skills are what you need to have. I mean, it's it, the, the traditional way with agents and, and uh, the guilds, uh, you know, they're still there. So the, the traditional process of having to get something in front of a producer who likes you and at a festival or uh, your mother went to school with uh, Ron Howard or whoever it happens to be, uh, you're going to have to show that you know what you're doing. And, and uh, it's much easier to do that today with the tools than it was at, um, any other time in the history of film. Right, and you know, as you were saying earlier, there these days the the cost of the equipment and so forth is not what it used to be. Thankfully, now it's the artistry yeah. of using it. So, and of course, when you were talking about YouTube and the popularity, the number of subscribers shows the level of interest in viewers, etc. So, there are lots of different ways that people work toward getting uh, things more visible of their popularity so that they can do more films. And now, do you feel that do-it-yourself filmmaking is the best way to build a career? Well, it's so easy uh, that, uh, yes, because first of all, everybody is DIY at the beginning, unless your dad is a a multimillionaire and going to, you know, pay for your films. So uh, we all start out kind of DIY now because – if you go to film school, uh, you might have a, you know, your friends helping you and such, but or you or you don't go to film school and you're just looking at YouTube videos on how to do this work. You are starting out that way. But I understand your question. The alternative would be to go to film school or uh, move to LA uh, and and uh, try and start to get any job in the industry. But at the end, but at the end of the day, uh, uh, people who are motivated and really kind of know what they want to do. That's certainly a part. So they have a story in their head. They want to make it. Yeah, DIY is probably the best way to get that going. Um, and it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. the entire film. You just need three or four minutes of high-quality work. And, uh, you know, the film – I should I should mention that um, I used to go to film 
oh, uh, film festivals uh, back in the early 70s. And the quality of the work coming out of school was really just terrible. People only had enough money to make you know, one 16-millimeter film in a year and a half, and they uh, uh, couldn't do things over. It was way harder, and so the quality of the work wasn't, wasn't that terrific. But today you go to the film festivals, you look at the student work, it's astonishingly good. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and it's uh, presented, you know, uh, uh, essentially like it's a 35-millimeter film shot on your iPhone. And we now have uh, 4K in addition to 2K, so... Uh, you project your documentary at a festival. It 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 it, it seamlessly fits in with some something that somebody shot on 35 millimeter. It's, to the audience, it's almost exactly the same thing. Okay. So that's a big deal. All right. It is. Yes. Some really good work out there already that uh, you know uh, really uh, makes one wonder how we ever uh, lived without it. <laughs> In the first place. No, well, that's true. So, I, I, well, yeah, and, and certainly for me, um, you know, uh, I have. I'm sitting now in a space. I'm talking to you through my Rode microphone, which I use for recording soundtrack, uh, or I should say, narration for and scratch tracks for animation. And I've got a computer, and we're connected through that. And on there is all my software for. So when we hang up, if I decided I wanted to make a short, uh, and let's say it was raining, it's not raining today. But it's cloudy. But if it were raining, I could run out with my iPhone and just get pictures of rain coming out of a downspout, coming out of a gutter, uh, pooling, running into drains, uh, all the different things where water's moving, and cut it to music uh, and do that in one day. And I could produce a three-minute, two-and-a-half, three-minute film. Now, I could take more days to, to cut and, and, and work with it, but it's that easy. And that would, could be projectable at a festival and no one would say, oh, look, it was shot in 8mm. Oh, it's, this is low budget because they none of that is there. And if I did visual effects right. or did a title sequence, it could be the equal of uh, a feature film that you go to see at the, the local Cineplex. I mean, that's, it's crazy, but that's where we are today, and it's a huge opportunity. You mentioned that you have a mic that you hook in. What, tell us about your yeah. mic. Well, the road mic, uh, you know, it's, he, he, uh, one of the things that people forget to do, you know, we're talking about now what filmmakers need to know, um, bad audio is not uncommon. And so it's, it, it, uh, the difference between a $29, $39, $50, even a $100 microphone and a really, really good mic is, is considerable. So uh, I went out and bought a, basically a $300 Rode microphone. I can't remember the model. I think it's NH1 maybe. Um, and it's terrific. I, you know, I have multiple microphones here, and uh, and I have a couple of inexpensive ones on my you know headphones. Uh, and when and when I compare the recordings, it's like the difference between night and day without me doing anything. And even though there's a lot you can do to audio today when you bring it in, you can alter it, uh, you know, and, and make it richer in various ways. But uh, there's a limit to the degree to which you can do that. And uh, uh, so anyway, the road mic and, and the kind of technology that I have in my in this one room here would basically makes me a, a, a mini movie studio. Nice. All right. Well, uh, you did mention about film school earlier, but I do want to cover a yep. little more detail on that. Um, sure. So because I want to cover this, do, do you feel that the area in your book where you talk about do you think film school is of value? 
Um, does that stand out today even more, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a, you know, it's a well, two things I think about. One is the incredible cost of college today, and that's and that's a real uh, issue uh, for me. Uh, it, it's it's two hundred thousand dollars, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars is just a tremendous amount of money in film school. You've got lab fees on top of it. And, uh, you know, now all the tech – you used to go to film school. I should back up a little bit. You used to go to film school to get the gear, uh, to get meet the people, uh, meeting other filmmakers, uh, and have free crews essentially. So you get to make films, and you, ha- you had the time, and you had the gear. And the classes were very important, of course, but um, I think in many ways uh, the most important thing was to be able to have four years off to uh, make them. But in the past – that was so expensive you didn't get much out of it. Today you get much, much more out of it uh, if, uh, because the film schools also have the newer technology and uh, everything has changed for them too. But if you have to do it DIY, it's, uh, that works. That's a, that's, it, as an alternative to film school, DIY filmmaking and getting your stuff out there is, for a certain kind of personality, uh, a very legitimate way to go. I interviewed a... Uh, I write for Variety um, from time to time, and I did an article on uh, Ryan Higa, uh, who's one of the top YouTubers of all time and has millions of followers. And, uh, he, and his work, he, do, he does comedy, but um, his work is fantastic. And, uh, you know, we were talking about how he got started, and he just grabbed a VHS camera. Well, he's a very uh, driven personality. Very affable, nice guy, but um, he started making shorts right before YouTube uh, launched, and it took him two or three years, I think, to almost making weekly videos before he broke mm-hmm. out. And, and now he's a multimillionaire <laughs> and has his own studio in a, in a large home <laughs> near Las Vegas. And uh, so he was a person to whom you know, he didn't even – Think about film school. In fact, uh, he didn't even think of what he was doing as being filmmaking necessarily. He was doing comedy for his friends. Well, it wasn't long before he was compared to other filmmakers. But anyway, personality, I keep using that word because that's an important thing. It's for people who really kind of say, you know, I'm going to do this no matter what happens. And I can figure mm-hmm. it out. And there are people out there who are talented, who aren't, who don't have that kind of uh, – um, uh, self-awareness or uh, assuredness, and uh, they say, "Well, I, I want to do this. I know I can do it, but I need some help, and I need to be in." An, and I'm, be- I'm, I'm a, a person who needs to be surrounded by other people to, to to work on things. So, because as a DIY filmmaker, you're pretty much a loner for a lot of the time. When you're editing, when you're writing, uh, you may be shooting for three or four days, but all the other many, many, many days that go into post and pre-production, you're alone. So um, in answering you about uh, is film school good or not, uh, it has a lot to do with the kind of person you are. Uh, the good news is if in the past if you didn't have film school and you weren't going to get a 16-millimeter camera to take out on loan for the weekend to shoot your short, the, the, the options were practically zero unless you had you know, dollars $15,000, which is what it would have cost to make a short at a reasonably professional level. Um, today, uh, you can make 10 shorts for, you know, uh, $500. Um, so uh, that, I think, is really uh, one of the, the, the major things that's happened is that there's now there's an alternative to film school. 
And you can go on YouTube. There's many well-known filmmakers today who talk about the fact they didn't go to film school, uh, although at the time they were going to college, they, they knew that they wanted to be filmmakers. Um, in my case, I was a uh, uh, liberal arts major. I was a philosophy and lit major in New York City because I basically felt that um, I had been doing films since I was a kid. I didn't really need anybody to show me how to load a Bolex or RES or any of the other more sophisticated cameras, whatever was out there at the time for film students. And so I felt, well, I'm going to look into the things and study the things that I want to make movies about uh, rather than the technology of making a movie. What I missed out on was some of the business stuff. And that's changed too. Uh, today, in, uh, when I, uh, you know, I had many friends. I was in New York City so uh, when I, in the early 70s, or the, my college years, and uh, you know, tons of filmmakers around uh, like myself who wanted to get into the business. But um, I would say that, uh, you know, for, for so anyway, there was a lot of activity in places I could go. But if I wanted to make something on my own, I, you know, I would have had to find a crew. So uh, today, film school, I think, is still a very good thing to do. Um, the business side, as I mentioned, is something that's taught much better today. Back in the 60s, we were all going to be artists. The world was going to change. Uh, it was part of the hippie movement. I wasn't really that far into that, but that was kind of the zeitgeist of the times. And you didn't talk about business or making money. Uh, that was uh, something you did after you turned 30. And uh, today, you go to film school, and there are courses on how to, uh, well, really how to present yourself once you get out of school. How to put together a portfolio, how to put together your reel, how to present yourself. Here are the, there were courses, there's courses on uh, copyright and uh, the legal side of making a film. Just all this stuff has uh, come about that's much more, I would say, uh, training uh, uh, rather than the normal aesthetic uh, training you had in getting a BA of any kind. Um, much of it, there is, there is a lot of attention paid to the fact that, well, you, once you graduate, you've got to make a living. That didn't exist when I was in, oh, I was in school. So that's something that's also valuable. And yeah, networking is the other major advantage at a, at a film school. It depends on what film, your school, film school you're at, but if you're US, USC or you get into AFI or any of the others, there are a lot of professionals around, and you can make an impact. If you're really good, you will be seen there. And the school also pushed you uh, uh, to, to, to various places because they know you, you may have a good shot of getting in quickly. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I addressed everything that I, I, I think about film school, but uh, those, those are the big points, I think. And, and it is really a yes. decision that has to be made on kind of a personal level. There's no right or wrong. Right. And, you know, there are other resources available if you, if you don't go to school itself that uh, oh my God, yes. fill in the gaps. Well, my book is one of them. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to make a little bit of a joke, but the truth is that, as I say, uh, there was very little literature or books on filmmaking when I was a kid. Today, there are tons of them. And on YouTube, there is no subject related to film, whether it's sound or it's mixing sound or it's lighting or it's editing or creating titles. Uh, there you will, you will find five or six or seven uh, videos out there. And, yeah, it's hit or miss. Some are, are not well done. Some are not well produced. Uh, but I almost always find one or two videos 
uh, done by people who really paid attention to how it, it, it should be done and put out great material. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, um, let's get back to your book. There's a little bit more here that I think would be very useful for our okay. filmmakers. And in part one of Shot by Shot called Visualization, the Process, Give us a good overview of this section because there's a lot of treasure in there to uh, to learn from. Right. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. Well, visualization uh, is what you do when you have an you write your script. Not necessarily starting with a script, but let's do the normal way. You have a script. You're a director. You get this, and you're reading it. And of course, what's happening is you're having all these pictures in your head. And now you say, okay, well, this is great. Well. If you say, I want to change this page of dialogue or this, this, these two pages of script and dialogue, you, you can just retype it right there and hand it off to a uh, production manager or a producer or anybody else uh, who, who uh, needs to look at this material next. And that, so that change has been made. Well, how do you do that if you want to say, well, I want to start with a close-up and I want to pull back, and then we're going to cut to Nancy over here for a close-up. Then we're going to go walk. Well, that doesn't mean very much. Uh, it has to be seen visually. So visualization is getting it from where it's in your head where you see it onto a new form. And that form, there now there are many different ways to do that. Storyboarding is one of them. You can do shot lists. Uh, you can go out and shoot photo boards, which is to use your iPhone or any other camera to go get your friends to a diner. You were seen in the diner. Well, you can get them there. You buy them lunch, and then you go around shooting them all different angles. Now you've got all these shots. Now, you may not even be recording the dialogue. You're not doing the video of it. You're just getting individual frames, and those will then you'll bring back and put into an editing package, and you'll start to put something together, and that's a, a, a photographic version of a story. But these are all things you're doing to be able to present the material to other people, but it's also for yourself it, because even though you sit down and say, I see the whole novel in my head or the whole short story, and, they can, and a person like that could – then sit there and tell you what they see, but it's, it's not the same thing as having written it out. And so that's the same thing for any of these visual uh, requirements where you're trying to get what you see in your head over to, the, to be made. You have to present it to people. And uh, so that's what visualization is about. It's talking about how we go through that process and going from, the, from a uh, text version of a story. You can do thumbnails. Uh, thumbnails are little uh, drawings for people. Well, some artists do thumbnails, but it's also a, it's making storyboards the size of an index uh, card or even smaller, a business card, with a pencil on a sheet of paper, and you can draw stick figures. So if you don't, you're a director and you don't draw, you can go in and you can make up this very primitive-looking thing. But believe me, that primitive thing, when you write dialogue underneath and you look at it, try and follow it for your story – tells you so much and what happens is mm-hmm. people say wow i didn't understand why this didn't work i got two close-ups in a row that's not good so now you can move these things around and you redraw them well now you're into the revision process and as anybody will tell you writing uh the art of writing is rewriting so that's what you're doing you're figuring out your sequence now and it can take quite a bit of time to get it exactly right and you get new ideas it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a, you know it's a lot of fun for a filmmaker it's um, but it, it is a challenge for people who don't draw. So uh, the new technologies now open up all different ways. There's actually um, software dedicated to previsings. Uh, Frameforge is one. There's uh, there's quite a few of these. 
um, out there, and it's for directors, and they have lenses and cameras and gear and props and sets and characters, and uh, you can either generate still pictures or you can generate video. And you can animate in these. These, are, and these programs allow you to animate 3D objects. There's also ones that allow you to animate 2D objects. And products like uh, Premiere Pro and After Effects and such, they, they can also host uh, your visualization um, work. Uh, and you can bring these things that you've shot or drawn or acquired. You can go into magazines and you can say, gee, you know, I, can't, I don't have any, uh, I can't draw. I don't have time to go out and take pictures. Well, there are sites that have tons of reference uh, photos of human beings, but you can you know, also just go to magazines and scan that in um, so you have close-ups. Um, it doesn't really matter if it looks consistent shot to shot. So anyway, those are, that's kind of what visualization is about, all the things to get to a point where you're, uh, one, you're creating a new communication form uh, so you can clearly explain what you want to do for a scene, it's also the place in which you work out that scene as an artist, as a director. You're the one trying to determine the emotional content of the scene, and uh, how you put the pictures together determines that, and, and it doesn't come to you the first time, even though everybody thinks it does. It's, it's a painstaking process. Yes, yes. But it's fun. And, you know, it's <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why we do these things, making the films yeah, yeah. and so forth. And, you, you know, your book is almost like a film itself. You have almost 400 pages of information. It looks like hundreds of photos to guide you. Yep. And this really does help guide one step-by-step step in creating a film. It must have taken you years to put all this together. Well, it did take a lot. Of, this is a, there's, a little, there's a little bit of story behind this. When I was in high school, uh, I got into like an AP English thing, and um, it was in the 60s. So they had things like they allowed us to grade ourselves. It was very forward-thinking. It was a liberal town. And uh, anyway, uh, in senior year, uh, Rich Bradley was the was the uh, English teacher, and he and he allowed us to do any project we wanted for the last semester. So I said I wanted to write a book on filmmaking because there was one. I was I was probably 17 at the time. And so I wrote a, a table of contents, and I obviously was going to write a book, but you know what I was going to write was the plan for a book, and I, I sort of did that, and um, uh, and that was that, and I put it away and didn't really think about it again until I met Michael, and I knew Michael uh, through the fact that I had done a comedy short, and he had done a comedy short, and he was in Connecticut, he was living in my hometown, and I knew him as a I was a producer, and I knew him as a producer before I knew him. Uh, as, a, as a publisher, and Michael and I became friends, and then one day we were sitting uh, uh, in Westport, Connecticut, a diner, and he had his first or second book, I said, you know, Steve, you know so much about uh, the visual side of film, I bet there's a book there. So I said, yeah, yeah, it's a, you're probably right, and I, you know, when I, I actually had an interest in this 20 years ago, or however many years it was when I was in high school, 25 years ago, 20, whatever it was, and I went out and I did the TOC over a weekend, and I got all excited about it, and then I sat down to do it. And I have to say, you're, you're absolutely correct. It, it was a, a much bigger uh, project than I thought it would be. But once I got into it, I felt, well, you know, there's, there are a few other books out there, and if I'm going to do this, it has to be the best book. And uh, so that's I started out writing what I thought it would need to be, and then I realized it had to be visual. And, yes, there's 800 illustrations and photos in the book of which I did like 
five or six hundred of them. So there's a fair amount of storyboarding and that I do this comparison. Like I do a storyboard for a little you know, short script. I said, oh, well, okay, th- that worked this way. Oh, now I'm going to do it over. And then I said, oh, now I'm going to do that over. And to me, that's <laughs> the most powerful way to understand how these things work because all the other books I was looking at uh, that were out uh, more or less on the subject of Hollywood decoupage, they would show you how it worked in classic films. <clears throat> but every one of those classic films didn't end up there. There were multiple shots if in Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, for example, you take any scene, and we look at it, and we, and we cherish the way it was put together. It's like, oh, this is one of the greatest films uh, in, in the canon. It's one of the great, the great masterpieces of film. And uh, th- look at how it goes. It's, isn't that great how it goes together? I learned from that. But you don't understand that Orson Welles didn't get it right the first time. The thing you're seeing on the screen probably was cut, recut, um, and, re- and adjusted many, 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 many times. Um, and so, and, it, and that film was storyboarded. Uh, in fact, I knew the last living storyboarder on Citizen Kane, a guy called Maurice Zuberano, um, Zubi, who was sort of a beloved storyboarder and art director. Um, and I got to speak to him um, in the last few years. He was very healthy, actually, when I interviewed him and took him to lunch a few times, and uh, along with the other, many, many other people from that era to, to find out, you know, what, what was their process. So, um, Anyway, um, that's, that's uh, when you're putting together these things, the, the, the teaching method uh, has to really show you different ways of doing things, in my view, in order that you understand, uh, you know, what you're going to have to do. Uh, you know, so anyway, that, that's the, that was the, the main strategy of the book is, okay, here, look at this. How do you like that? Well, let's try it another way. Let's try it another way. So it's the comparisons, I think, that are really the key to, uh, learning. Yes, a lot like filmmaking. <laughs> so, well, what are some of the comments? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, I've I've authored a book too, and boy, <laughs> what a process! <laughs> so, what are some process. of the comments that you hear? Oh, 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 about oh what's the that? Book? Please go ahead. Well, well, I was just going to say that um, you know, in 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 putting the book. Together, there were, you know, just like anything else, the book has a budget. And so there's, you have to decide, well, how long is it going to be? And Michael at some point just said, that's it. He said, it, it, don't go over this length. It's becoming a tome and people won't buy it. And by that time, I was sort of reasonably confident that I'd gotten across what I wanted to get. But, you know, there is a second book called Cinematic oh. Motion, which is sort of a follow-up. Yeah, and uh, it did very, very well, but nowhere near as well as Shot by Shot. And it's out there, and it gets used, and it uh, takes uh, it took to the next step, which is what we call what is the sequence shot. Shot by Shot um, did addresses a great deal of uh, what you do with moving cameras, but there's a particular kind of staging that I didn't get into in an, into enormous depth, which is what we call the sequence shot. So imagine. You've got coverage of a number of people, five people sitting at a card table playing poker. And we, you know, you can go around, shoot every single character, reads all their lines, move on to the next guy, do the same thing. Then, uh, and those are all with frontal close-ups. So now you've got five people at the table, ten shots. Now you do it mm-hmm. over, you know, now you've got all these different things to put together. Well, there are directors like Steven Spielberg and Bernardo Bertolucci uh, and, and others who will direct a sequence in which there's very, very little cutting. 
the camera moves, the actors move, but uh, you're not cutting all the time, and that's called a sequence mm-hmm. shot. And some of the great ones are minutes long, and it's almost – they're entire sequences that would normally be made up of like 25 or 30 shots, and the director elects to do it with one. And I wow. didn't really – so complex to sort of explain uh, in a book mm-hmm. – that we left it, it – we didn't make it into the first book. So the second book, Cinematic Motion, does talk about doing sequence shots. So I interrupted you, so right. you were going to ask me about comics, I think. Oh, no, 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 that's all right. Uh, you know, I know in, in, in Shot by Shot, in Part 3, the workshop, you do discuss dialogue staging and, and how to stage with three or more people. But um, you, you, it sounds like you're saying you go more into detail with your second book. Well, uh, for a, a very only for the one thing, which is why it's called cinematic motion. It's uh, it's about doing these stage sequences. Now, um, the workshop part of it actually has stagings from one person, two people, three people, four people. Five. After five, you're a crowd, and you and and you do that differently. <laughs> so. Uh, and you know, and, and what I do is I run through for every given uh, situation multiple uh, ways of doing it, uh, and then once I actually, and, and even even after you've selected a way to do it, there are you know it, variations are mentioned in the text. So uh, right. staging dialogue uh, is you know just so we have it on. It needs to be mentioned. There's coverage. And then there's people who only shoot what, what they call uh, camera cutting. So if we have a couple more minutes, I'll do that really. I'll get into that really fast. Coverage as you go. You got to see. Yes, you gotta, please do. Like, okay, we've got a dialogue sequence between three people. They're uh, they're standing talking outside, and uh, there are a number of conventions you can follow to get different kinds of shots. So you have a close up. You have an over the shoulder shot. Uh, you have a shot, reverse shot pattern. These are things that are in the book. Most people, all directors know them. And uh, you have, you know, you have full shots and medium shots. And uh, so you, and directors like Ron Howard, who I have a lot of admiration for, is a, uh, well, he's a, he's a, a shooter, uh, excuse me, a director who shoots um, as many shot, many angles as possible. And he'll figure it out when he gets to the edit. Alfred Hitchcock was almost the complete opposite. He would design all his shots in a storyboard. He would go shoot those shots, and he wouldn't really shoot many alternative ways of doing things. And it was the way that he could ensure the control of how he wanted to do his movie, and the, and the studio couldn't step in, as they often do today, and take. The, and they're in the cutting room, a producer, uh, the stu- a representative of the studio, get in, and they will make comments on the scene, how you could change it, and then you go back because you've got all this coverage uh, available. Uh, so you, you shot 45 different shots, but you only at the end need eight of them or seven of them. Um, and you can endlessly try different versions. And there was a story of John Ford, I forget what picture, there was with Maureen O'Hara, one of his later pictures. And he was being asked in an interview, uh, there's a famous shot where the uh, Maureen O'Hara is very close in a, in a carriage, and very, very far away is, is uh, one of the most prominent characters, and they're silhouetted in the distance, tiny in the frame. And so um, someone asked uh, John Ford, and he said, well, I remember that shot. It was so great, but it was done such an unconventional way. Why didn't you go and get the close-up 
did you did you get that? Did you cover that in the shot and case? The long this, the way you did it didn't work. And he said, no, I didn't shoot it because. And, and he said, well, why? He said because the studio would have used it. So that's um, camera cutting in the extreme. It's like cutting off any kind of interference because you only shot a certain way to do the the. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. It only goes together one way. So uh, and those are two completely permissible ways of making a movie. Um, there's no question that uh, coverage is for the people who are less confident and maybe are not, you know, maybe they're great actor directors, but they're not visual stylists. Steven Spielberg, probably of the American directors, uh, has most used the sequence shot uh, in his career, um, but then he's a, uh, he's a prodigy. He's a visual prodigy. And uh, but there's there are still some other people who are who are uh, the sequence shot now is kind of like a macho thing for young filmmakers. They want to see how long they can do a scene without cutting. Um, uh, but often what they're doing is really not what makes a sequence shot great. Uh, they're just following someone around with a light camera because you can do it. The technology allows you to do it. And you choreograph the actors to get to be where they need, and that requires a little skill. But generally. Uh, oftentimes uh, you end up with just a single you have a, you have a master shot and uh, it moves from people from person to person but the storytelling is still simplistic and that's quite different than for example when uh, Orson Welles did the famous sequence shot in the opening of Touch of Evil which is I think four and a half or five minutes long and uh, I, I wouldn't even describe it it covers a, a different parts of uh, uh, an area in the city moving from place to place Picking up one storyline, which goes to another, it's it's a it's a great piece of work, but that's that's uh, that's the best use of a sequence shot. So those are those are some of the uh, you know, large sort of conventions that we have to deal with in motion pictures, and a director has to know. Great examples, certainly. So you. You know, this is a top-selling book on film directing, and I know that you must have gotten a lot of wonderful feedback from people who've read your book. What, what are some of the things that, that you have heard the most of from uh, people who love your book? Wow, that's an interesting question. I've not been asked that before. Uh, well, um, I do hear back. Um, most of the time what happens is I'm introduced in, in like a film setting. So here I'm at in L.A., I'm, this, is what, this is my career, and uh, occasionally at events, I'll shake someone's hand and, and by way of introducing myself, you know, share a little bit of credits, a little, got little bragging rights for that. And then people go, oh, oh, wait a second, I have that book on my shelf. And I do try and ask sometimes when it's, when it's uh, comfortable to say, well, gee, did you like it? What was good about it? Um, and I think people like the comparative aspect. And I, I did hear, uh, and on the flip side of that, I've heard people say, gee, I didn't know I was supposed to look at it that way. I just sort of skimmed through it. And I said, well, you should really go back and look at each one of those little black and white frames and imagine there's a shot, and there's five others on the page. Imagine there's a cut between them, and, and let your eyes make that cut. Go from So that sort of thing was, uh, I, I do find there are people who, who, co who totally get it and other people who, got the text information but didn't know how to use, uh, how to uh, really, you know, visualize looking at the pictures that are in the book. So we, uh, the book, I think, stands alone pretty well, but uh, having someone to sort of d discuss it with you or to t talk you through it 
is, I think, um, greatly beneficial. Um, uh, most people comment on the fact that it's, that it's, it's a lot of material. And, uh, but, you know, I, you know I, I should probably go out there and do more canvassing. The fact was the book was successful, which surprised everybody. Um, I was told when I wrote it that it would sell 5,000 copies, and that would be it. And the reason I was doing it or should do it is because it was a, it was a, it was a credit. You know, it was, it was, it was a career-building move. Um, and for me, I never really thought of it that way. I was just excited about getting this information out because I thought I had a new way of presenting it. And I had studied film language in a way most people don't, beyond what you would need to know to be, become a good director. So I was studying it for, this, for the historical changes and many other things. And, uh, but um, the, I, I would say in, in regards to the, the, the comments, uh, they continue to flow in. Uh, but they're usually just compliments. So I don't, I don't really get too much people really getting into the nitty-gritty of the book with me unless I'm doing a workshop and then they come up afterwards or we all go out to lunch and then we talk shop. You do workshops. Are there any Are there any workshops coming up that we can uh, look forward to? Well, I don't. Do, I used to do more. I I, I, uh, I don't do very many uh, anymore. But I'm doing one in China. In uh, uh, August 10th is the plan, and that's a uh, a two day uh, workshop. And, you know, I might do more. I mean, Michael's always interested in having me go out. It's just that it's really always just the time management thing. I'm doing other things. There's never enough time as an artist to find. You've always got a list of projects you want to do. And, uh, you know, so any time you're not doing them. I mean, my impulse as a human being is to make stuff. And so, uh, if I, you know, you give me, uh, an, an, you know, a computer and, a word processor or a camera, I'm, I'm going to make things. So anything that's not doing that uh, seems like the, the, the next thing I'd like to do, not the first thing. But I, the workshops are fun. They're grueling, though. I will say that. Doing eight hours on my feet is, uh, is tiring. <laughs> well, with all the information you have to share, I can just imagine it would be overwhelm in a lot of cases. So well, what would well, you give filmmakers – on how sorry, to ahead. take advantage of all the benefits available to them today. What would you, what would you give them in your, in your great wisdom of the benefits available today to them? Oh, wow. Well, um, certainly uh, making – look, you want to become a filmmaker? you got to make films. That's it. That's, uh, that's, that's the shortest answer. There are a phenomenal number of resources out there. YouTube, anything online with the courses, there are, there are also, if you don't go to film school, another option is to do something like the New York Film Academy. <clears throat> there are a number of those, and many of the colleges are now offering shorter programs uh, for people who just want to train to get the, the basics of filmmaking, and uh, they're not looking for a degree. So that's out there as well, and some of that's pretty good. Certainly, um, New York... Film Academy, I th and I, you know, I haven't looked at their schedule, their pricing, or anything for a long time, but I think they had things that were like a chunk of six weeks. You'd go in six weeks, and at the end of the six weeks, you would have produced a short of some kind. And I know people who've taken those that course and others, so that's very powerful. 
Um, but your iPhone, a little video camera, uh, get out there and shoot. And when I gave that example of the, uh, the water uh, running and you're shooting, do that. You know, uh, at one point, uh, you probably know, I, I taught Michael Jackson. And, um, I, some, and I, I, I had to be sensitive to, to the fact that it was Michael Jackson. But a couple of times after I got to know him, I said, Michael, you can pay for anything. Uh, you can, you know, if you want to go make a film for $35,000, you can do it. And yet so much of what we're working on together over these many months, we're circling, coming to getting started making a film. Why aren't we making a film every day? Why aren't we making a film every week? Why, and I'm talking about a short of some kind. So that's how you learn. You have, you know, and, and, but it's not just about the learning. It's not just an intermediary step to the thing that you want to do. It is the thing you want to do. So, uh, you know, when I was a kid and I would go and look at avant-garde film or the shorts and things, and I thought, oh, God, I mean, when, when, I'm, when I'm all grown up and I'm going to make my own shorts and I, all these great ideas I have, well, now that I'm here, I have to, even with me, I did, uh, taking the camera and going out and just shooting something opportunistically uh, doesn't happen as quickly as it should for me. But, um, you know, that's partly being older and, and having, uh, you know, responsibilities and lots of things I have to do in addition to making a living. But uh, for new filmmakers, if you're at that age when you can, uh, you know, take weeks off, months off, uh, weekends, and have not too much else to do except your main, uh, your love filmmaking, then you ought to be doing that. So uh, whatever is the, the gene that, that prompts people to uh, uh, be highly self-motivated and not fearful is uh, is a good thing for filmmakers, but that's it. Most people are worried it's not going to look good or they're not going to like it. And uh, I do know that the, the current, uh, the new generation is uh, troubled by that less than uh, even people from 20 years ago, because uh, they know they got the you know they're shooting video all the time, and so they don't take it quite as seriously. It's not like they lay you know they laid something it's like etched in stone. They shot something. No, screw it. Tomorrow I'll do something. I'll, you know, I'll do that over. I'll bring my friend back. We'll shoot that over. So um, I think that that kind of freedom um, is very, very good. And, uh, and, and then the other thing that I find that people, uh, you know, if they, they want to get started is, you know, they're looking for ideas. And that's, a, that's almost another hour. That's a separate thing. When I was in China, it's very mimetic culture. They copy everything. And it was a difficult habit to break with the artist I, I, I was working with there. So um, I did on a couple of occasions bring 20, 30 people to them and say, okay, let's just talk about um, how you generate an idea and where they come from. And I would, I would just pull people at random out of the clinic and I'd say, okay, well, how did you get to work this morning? What happened? Well, I biked and I did this and it's eight miles from me and where'd you get food? Where'd you go? I did this. And out of that, I would start to pick little moments of, well, you know, what happened here? What if this had happened? And then we, and, and, and I would build a story out of the events they'd be telling me. And the whole point of it was, hey, every day you go do something, go to lunch, something interesting happened. And if it didn't happen, figure out a place where it could have happened. And then let your imagination run and, what, and, and we'll do this a few times and watch us do it and you'll get better at it. So uh, that sort of drives um, – I think a lot of uh, the fear that people have about going out and just making something uh, is where their ideas come from and is the idea too mm -hmm. big. You, have to, you, you do get better at it. You get better at doing small ideas. That's the first thing you have to learn is um, 
you don't have unlimited budget. And even though the gear is now cheaper, get eight people or five or three people to a location and it's a restaurant. Well, you know, it's noisy. Are you going to shut the restaurant down? Are you going to tell the guy, I will pay you $300 to uh, use your diner at night from uh, midnight when you close to four in the morning? We're going to come in and shoot. So there are all those, you know, so you have to, there is money you still have to spend to make movies. So make, write something small. You know, and here I am talking about yeah. your ads. We're talking about my book, and I'm talking about the writing, but that's really it. That's really the signature thing in my view is that uh, at the end of the day, you're telling a story. And that's right, the first that's thing the you key. have to come up with. That's the key. That is the key. Well, we, we uh, really appreciate all the wealth of information that you have shared today. And I know if we could carry on with the conversation, there would be so much more that you could offer. Yeah. But for right now, we're going to have to um, ask you, how can people get your book and how can you be reached? Well, um, uh, you can reach me through my publisher, which is Michael Weasley Publishing, and I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the URL, the exact URL, but if you look up, if you type in shot by shot, it'll take you either to Amazon, and you can buy it there, um, or you can go to the Michael Weasley site, and uh, Carol, should, you guys should have all that information, um, but uh, if you go to Michael's site, you'll learn about all, many, many books, including Carol's. And, uh, and yes, you will need to raise money to make an indie feature. So that's an important book. And there are many others. Um, and Michael has some other links to uh, things that are of value. I, and I have a Shot by Shot now has a website, which is shotbyshotbook.com. Shotbyshotbook.com. And uh, it's new. It's being populated with more and more material. It's not fully up and running, but there is stuff to, to see there, and I'll be adding material uh, all along. But it has, it has uh, many, many storyboard artists are now featured there, and you can click on their gallery and see their work. And uh, I put something up last night, and it's, I'm going to continue to put work up there. That's the whole point. The reason for the site is that uh, filmmaking is now a very technological craft. And uh, the technology changes so quickly that no book that writes about this can stay uh, current for really more than three or four right. or five years. So yeah. this was our way of getting around me having to write a third edition in five years. Uh, <laughs> people are referred right. in the book to the site. And, and, and one last thing, That's I would say great. that we're able to do things. We're going to be able to put up animatics and, and we, we're able to put a video. And that's a huge boon. So shotbyshotbook.com will have actual motion stuff. And there's a few things up there now. I have Jane Wu, a fantastic storyboard artist, uh, gave me some of her animatics for uh, some blockbuster films. And, uh, you know, you can't do that in a book. That's true. That is so true. Thank you so much for sharing your information with our audience. It has been amazing. So much to learn here. And best of luck to you as well with uh, your new website and all of the new ventures coming up for you also. Oh, well, thank you so much. I had a great time. Yes, same here. And we really appreciate all that you're doing for filmmakers and, uh, I know that you'll be back. We'll have to have you back on the show, Stephen. I would love to come back. Absolutely. There's so much to talk about on this subject, and, uh, yes, uh, and it's changing. It's always new news. Okay. Well, Stephen, you be well, 
and we'll talk to you again Well, thank soon. you to, to, to both of you, and uh, enjoyed today. It's, it was a lot of fun. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.